chapter 1. Romans 1, verses 16 through 17, and then I'll read uh, Article 22 for us in the Belgian Confession as we continue our study of uh, the Confession and uh, the doctrine there. Considering tonight justification, we've uh, thought about the work of Christ in particular, and justification is that, that first act of God wherein he applies to us the benefits of what Christ has done. Think about justification from this text in Romans 1, 16 and 17. So here, God's holy word. Uh, This is Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Then on page uh, 79, our blue hymnal, the back of our blue hymnal, Article 22. Our justification through faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that to attain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts an upright faith which embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits, appropriates him, and seeks nothing more besides him. For it must needs follow, either that all things which are requisite to our salvation are not in Jesus Christ, or if all things are in him, that then those who possess Jesus Christ through faith have complete salvation in him. Therefore, for any to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but that something more is required besides him, would be too gross a blasphemy, for hence it would follow that Christ was but half a savior." Therefore, we justly say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone or by faith apart from works. However, to speak more clearly, we do not mean that faith itself justifies us, for it is only an instrument with which we embrace Christ our righteousness. But Jesus Christ, imputing to us all his merits and so many holy works which he has done for us and in our stead, is our righteousness. And faith is an instrument that keeps us in communion with him in all his benefits, which, when they become ours, are more than sufficient to acquit us of our sins. Wonderful statement of gospel truth and how we are reconciled to God. What is something that you absolutely cannot do? No matter 
how much you wanted to, no matter how much you were to try, uh, excluding perhaps maybe years and years of working on it or uh, rewinding the, the, the clock of the body a few decades, right? What is something you absolutely cannot do? I'm fairly certain that none of us could right now uh, lace up some tennis shoes and go run a marathon in under two and a half hours, right? None of us could physically be able to do that. No matter how much I would want to be able to walk on a tennis court and be able to hang with uh, all of the other players at the Australian Open, I'm not going to be able to do that. I can't beat Novak Djokovic in a a tennis match. Apparently my beloved Rafael Nadal can no longer do so either, right? But that's besides the point. Um, So my my mind immediately goes to these uh, sports things we cannot do. There's all kinds of things that we, we, we could not necessarily do or achieve. It's just not in us. I, and this is perhaps more of an opinion, and I've mentioned this before, but I think sometimes you need a little dose of that. There's this, these limitations to the things that we can do. We see these wonderful people. We have this world that is so connected now, and sometimes you see the people who are the best in the world. That's something that they do. And uh, they are gifted in a certain sense. And it's good to remind ourselves that... Uh, Perhaps those things just aren't in us. You know, we couldn't be the world's best at violin or piano, even if we wanted to. There's limitations to what we do. Uh, I think that it's good for us to think about that from time to time. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to uh, being reconciled to God, it's good for the Christian, the Christian worldview, to be founded fundamentally on the fact that we absolutely cannot, by ourselves, achieve reconciliation to God. John Owen has said that the gospel speaks of another righteousness, right? Speaking, and the the, the first righteousness would be the righteousness that we can achieve on our own, the righteousness that we can do through our good works. He says the gospel speaks of another righteousness, which is also the righteousness of another. The gospel speaks of another righteousness, which is also the righteousness of another. What would we do if we did not have the righteousness of another, the righteousness of Jesus Christ? And we'll think about these things tonight as we think about Article 22, Romans chapter 1. And three things we think about. First, the power of Paul's message. The power of Paul's message, the power of the gospel. Secondly, the righteousness that it gives. The righteousness that it gives. And then thirdly, the proper faith by which we are saved. The proper faith by which we are saved. At the heart of it, human salvation. The Christian life begins when the, sinner, the, the sinner's heart cries out, What must I do to be saved? Realizing that it cannot find salvation in himself or in herself. This is what the Philippian jailer cried out to Paul and Silas after uh, jail doors are open in the book of Acts. Everyone's shackles fall off. The, the, The jailer awakes to find out that this is what has happened. There's been this earthquake. And he goes to take his sword to himself. He realizes he doesn't want to go through the punishment of seeing all of his prisoners escape while he was on duty. So he takes out his sword to presumably to end his own life. And Paul calls out to him, saying that uh, all of the, the prisoners have stayed in their cells. The jailer, obviously, or, uh, the, the, this guard, obviously 
uh, blown away by the fact that they're all still there, comes and kneels down in front of Paul. And he says, what must I do to be saved? This is an interesting story. What are the, what are the themes going on here? Why does, is he brought to this place? Paul is, is preaching a message of redemption, like we've been thinking about. He's preaching about the new exodus of Jesus. Uh, being redeemed out of your bondage to sin and death. Freed from the shackles of sin and condemnation. Paul's message means that there is a greater prison in which humanity finds itself, where we are all in shackles and chains, the prison of our sin. Thus, Paul means to say that he may indeed be in earthly chains, but he will gladly bear that reality if it means he can save more, if it means he can free more from the cosmic chains of the curse of sin. So this earthquake happens when Paul is in this jail. And in a sense, the the legitimacy of his message is sort of put on trial. What's Paul going to do? Is he going to walk out of the jail now that he has this escape standing right in front of him? Or does he really value his salvation and the message that he is proclaiming uh, more than he does his earthly freedom? Would he gladly accept shackles and chains if it meant that the message of the gospel would reach more people so that they might be freed from their cosmic shackles and chains? In order to preserve the life of this jailer, who likely would have been executed for having this happen under his watch, and in order to impress upon his mind the truth of this message, Paul stays Paul stays. He does not simply walk out. So the jailer processes this and he must be saying to himself, this is true. This message is true. Or at the very least that this man believes that it's true. Salvation by grace. Eternal life in this Savior, Jesus Christ. So he calls, Paul calls this man to faith. Believe you and your household. You will be saved. You can imagine perhaps Paul writing the letter to the Philippians later in his ministry with this man and his family on his mind. This is why Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel. uh, That what is is happening, the redemption from sin, eternal life, life uh, with the Lord and life in Jesus Christ is true. And therefore it is worth suffering on account of this message Considered on the whole, people would say that Paul brought a great deal of shame upon his life because of his apostolic ministry. And he brought, indeed, a great deal of earthly suffering upon his life because of his ministry. But he was willing to endure all of these things for the sake of his Lord and for the sake of the kingdom of God. We speak of this idea often. If the gospel is true, if salvation is really what we receive by faith, and through the grace of God, then how must our lives be shaped by it? This is that moment in Paul's life. We can point to it, right? So he could have snuck out, and uh, perhaps no one would have been the wiser. Could have been on the run and gotten out of that jail. But he stays there so that his message would be known, so that his message would be uh, believed. The grace would be impressed upon the mind of that guard. He becomes all things to all men, as he says elsewhere, that he might save some. 
The salvation by grace is, is in the forefront of his mind. This is, why, this is why I'm here on this earth. The Lord has called me to this apostolic ministry. And for that reason, Paul is not ashamed. And not only is it the nature of the truth, but he knows that he cannot be ashamed uh, because it is the gospel that is the power of God. It is the gospel that is doing the work in Paul's ministry. We cannot renounce or be ashamed of the very thing which God uses to advance his kingdom, by which God's kingdom goes forward. I'll use a golf illustration to perhaps open up the point. There's a a professional golfer now who's been getting a lot of attention. He was actually a fisherman. He's from South Korea. Uh, he was a fisherman up until his early 20s and never really played golf until then. So you talk about, you know, uh, earlier in the sermon, what can't you do? Perhaps up until he was 20, he thought he never could have been a professional golfer. Uh, he never really played golf until his early 20s. He had a, a fishing accident, apparently, or some kind of accident, lost part of his right thumb and ended up needing to stop being a fisherman. I don't know why. I'm not a, I'm not a fisherman. I don't, I don't know why or how this story makes sense. But uh, to make it even stranger, after he has this accident, he chose to become a professional golfer. Fascinating story. And uh, so in order for him to do this, since he was getting a late start in golfing, he needed to develop a very unorthodox swing in order to develop more power uh, and, and to make the ball go farther because that's a huge part of today's game. But the point is, without that swing, which is sort of, people are, it's all over the internet, people look at this swing, it's a sight to behold. And without that swing, he would not be able to have the success that he has had. So imagine he sort of goes up through the minor leagues of, of golf, finally gets to the big stage, but he's ashamed because he knows people are going to be poking fun at him and he's doing this thing that's very unorthodox, very strange. And so he gets to his first big tournament and he kind of tries to copy some other more conventional swing. It wouldn't work, would it? Because it was that swing that got him there. It, that was the power of his game. Abandoning that power would result in failure. And of course, in a much more serious way, in a much more meaningful way, the same is true for Paul. Paul can't abandon the gospel because it is the gospel that is doing the work for him. It is the gospel that is growing the kingdom of God. This gospel, though it is contrary to the human mind and it, it grades against the way that we naturally think of ourselves as generally good. We want to think about ourselves as generally good. People, people are okay. Uh, and at the end of it all, God's going to sort of balance the scales and good people are going to go to heaven when they die. That's what, that's what our hearts want to think. But Christianity, of course, is about our utter lack of any ability to save ourselves, that we need the help of another. We need the righteousness of another. We need the representation of another, someone who speaks for us from beginning to end. So that moment, what must I do to be saved? That's the, the foundational moment of the Christian life, sin qua non of the Christian life. It would not happen without it. It happens with a knowledge and an awareness of sin, a knowledge of an utter lack of righteousness before God. And usually that issues forth in despair. There's this despair over our sin where a sinner says, God is real, God is holy, I am made for God, I am not holy. Therefore, I cannot be with him and I cannot do and be what I was created to do and be. Lots of resistance to this truth in our world. 
right? It, it, it goes against our modern sensibilities. The Enlightenment made man the measure of all things, and if man is the measure of all things, then how can he be bad? How can he be desperately wicked? I was having coffee with a, a friend of mine this past week, a friend that I made while I was ministering in, in the city. He and I get together for coffee a couple times a year, and he's fascinated. I think he's just happy to have one Calvinist friend because he, he thinks there's very few of us out there. He's a, a Jewish man, kind of secular Jew, uh, doesn't really believe in, in, in anything objective true, objectively true. And I, I kind of give to him every time we have coffee and to just press him on the questions of origin, meaning, morality, destiny. You know, why are we here? How do we get here? Where are we going when we die? How do you objectify right and wrong? All these kinds of things, you know. But he recoils every time that I say the human heart is desperately wicked. And I look at him and I say, Jesus most accurately gives us the, the prescription of how our heart is, of who we are. We are desperately wicked. And he recoils. He says, how can you say that people are desperately wicked? He, he, he cannot stand it, right? Romans is filled with this language. The sinner is ungodly. The sinner is under the righteous judgment of God. The righteous judgment of God, right? It is right. It is inscrutable. God doesn't make any mistakes. And so his judgment is correct. It is right against sin. Romans says that someone who commits sin is worthy of death, a cosmic death penalty. Another image that relates back to Paul's action in the jail. Right? Paul looks at, at the human race and, and everyone who's not in Christ is on death row. It's not just that they're being held in shackles and chains. They're awaiting their execution. And so he's certainly willing to forego an early escape from prison to see that this one man, this Philippian jailer, might come to that place. What must I do to be saved? I need something else, don't I? To speak for me and to, to represent uh, me before God. Romans says we're without excuse. We're without excuse. Human beings are without excuse before a holy God. Our mouths are stopped. Right? Whether it's the, the Jews who explicitly receive the law or uh, Gentiles who by nature know what the law says. That God's uh, eternal power and his divine nature since the creation of the world have been clearly seen and men suppress the truth. They push it away but they are without excuse. The weight of all these things mounts, and we cry out, what must I do to be saved? Paul knew that the power of his message uh, was the gospel, and thus he could not be ashamed of the gospel. But what is the righteousness that the gospel gives? The central tenet of the Christian faith is the truth of justification, which we see in Article 22 in our Confession. Uh, this word is not too big. The concept is not too difficult for us to understand that we need to shy away from it, right? This is a foundational, important tenet of the Christian faith. Justification. It consists in two parts. God forgives us of our sins and he declares us as righteous. Not because of ourselves, but because of the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us and it is received by faith alone. This is what happens in the, the tribunal of God, the, the heavenly court, that sinners can be justified when a sinner is given new life and given uh, union with Christ, regenerated by the power of the gospel. Then God justifies the sinner who before was dead in his own transgressions and sins. 
Paul says then in verse 17 that in the gospel, it is the righteousness of God which is revealed, which is manifested. In other words, this is not merely a human righteousness. This is God's own righteousness given to us in our justification. The righteousness of God is something that's often linked in the Old Testament, uh, to salvation. Uh, God revealing his righteousness and revealing his salvation. For instance, Isaiah 46, uh, we read this. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay, the Lord says. I will put salvation in Zion, for Israel my glory. Isaiah 56, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. The the prophecies about the the fullness of God's righteousness that is going to be revealed that we see in the Old Testament. We see that whatever is going to happen is going to be in accord with God's perfect righteousness. But it's fulfilled in this, this magnificent way that seems to go even beyond what it says here in Isaiah. Right? It's it's not just that righteousness or it's not just that salvation accords with the rectitude of God. It is that in the Messiah. In the Son of God who comes to earth because of his work, his actual righteousness is given to those who believe in him in the gospel. It's fulfilled in this wonderful way that the righteousness of God is the righteousness of Christ. The gospel gives us the righteousness that we need. So when Paul says that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, he is pointing us to the righteousness of Christ that is given by faith. For instance, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 3, Paul goes on to say, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So it's not just, and when Paul says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, he's not just saying the rectitude, the right judgment of God. He's saying that that which is given to the believer through the gospel, by faith, that is an infinite righteousness. That is more than just a human righteousness. It has God as its author. It meets all the demands of God's justice. It is, as we said, it's infinite. It swallows up all sin in a moment, as Martin Luther put it. The righteousness that you are given by faith swallows up all sin, past, present, and future, in one moment. It's completely unlike uh, human sinfulness. It's entirely greater in quality and in depth than a mere human righteousness. So just as it is impossible for sin to exist in God or in Christ, so those who are given this righteousness in the gospel are no longer one with sin. Romans 6, you have been baptized into the death of Christ. Sin no longer reigns over you. It no longer has dominion over you. Therefore, consider yourselves as dead to sin and alive in righteousness. This is the great distinction between law and gospel. The law says, do this and live. Meet this standard. Meet this, uh, this definition of righteousness and I will give you life. What God said in the Garden of Eden. But the gospel is entirely different. The gospel says, believe in this, for it is already done. Believe in this, for it is already 
done. In other words, as it relates to this foundational principle that we must understand, justification is not rendered according to works. There is no introduction, there's no aspect of justification that has to do with our works. Not at all. We do not stand before God and he looks at our faith and then he looks at our works and then he mashes them together and then he renders his judgment. That's not justification. It's also not true that God looks into the future and God looks into the future of the works that you will perform and then considers that and then he justifies you. That's not justification either. And there's not a second justification that awaits you as a believer. No, he justifies the heart of the believing Christian as they have faith in Christ and as they trust in his work for them. Justification is not the only part of the Christian life, right? It's not the only thing that we need to know. But as it relates to justification, there is no works, no human works that enters the equation. Christ's work, but not our own. And sanctification is an absolutely essential part of the Christian life. We say that justification is an act of God. Sanctification is a work of God whereby he uh, more and more welcomes us into fellowship with himself and produces in us good works and a love and a zeal for good works. But sanctification is not justification. need to keep the two distinct and understand them. Luther says, He is not righteous who does much but he who without work believes much in Christ. This is why the confession drives this point home. If anything else is needed for us to be justified, then Christ is only half a savior. Do we find everything that we need in him to be saved, or do we not? To be reconciled to God, is it all found in him, or is it not? He is a perfect savior, a sufficient Savior, And we find all that we need uh, in him. That's the righteousness uh, that we find in the gospel. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we find, finally, we see the faith uh, by which we are justified. So the, the power of Paul's message, the righteousness uh, of the gospel, and then finally the faith by which we are justified. We know that faith is essential, but we ask, what is this faith? Faith is believing, in a sense, believing that something is true, believing in a testimony, uh, believing in a claim. But when it comes to the gospel, there's a, there's a call inherent in it, a call to repent and to place trust in Jesus Christ. That is, the gospel does not just say Jesus lived and died and rose again and asks whether or not you believe in the truthfulness of that claim. First, there needs to be an understanding that his work was finished and that it was done for sin. There needs to be conviction over sin, like the Philippian jailer says, uh, what must I do to be saved? Furthermore, there must be an understanding that what Christ does has an interest in one's own life. This is something that was done for me. This was part of my salvation. So there are these various aspects or things that we need to remember when it comes to faith. We read in scripture that uh, the demons believe and they tremble. We read in uh, the book of Acts, uh, uh, Simon, uh, the magician, it says that he believes but he himself is not saved or is not in Christ. We read in the book of James where it talks about a dead faith. We read in the parable of the sower where there are those who have faith but then their faith goes away. It is only temporary. 
So justifying, saving faith, we talk about it needs three things. Talked about this today in catechism. I should be able to call up any of the uh, students in my catechism right now. They could uh, perfectly, perfectly uh, describe this. The first is knowledge. The first part of saving faith is knowledge. We must know the essential truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth of the message. That Jesus came, he lived, he died for sin, he rose again. You need to know the content of the message. The second is assent. You must assent to the truthfulness of the gospel. Yes, all the things that the Bible says are true. All the things that Jesus did are true. Yes, Jesus is the only way of salvation. But the third aspect... The most important of our faith is trust. It is trusting in the work of Christ for you. It's abandoning trust in yourself. It's abandoning trust in your own righteousness. It's having assurance that what Jesus does, he does for you. And it is sufficient for your salvation. And so famously and wonderfully, our catechism puts it in question and answer 21. says, true faith, not false faith. There is false faith out there. There are those who would say, yeah, I know the content of the gospel, and yeah, perhaps I believe that it's true in some sense, but they, never, they don't have trust. There's no assurance. There's no assurance that that work for Christ is for you, that he died for your sins, that you are reconciled through his work. Right? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word, At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted uh, forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. And then it goes on to say that not only is it knowledge that the word of God is true, but it is a deep rooted uh, assurance, confidence, right? That all this has been done for you. Faith is then uh, defined this way biblically. It is knowledge. It is uh, assent. And it is trust or assurance or confidence. And then we also say that faith is the instrument by which we receive the righteousness of Christ. Right? Faith itself is not righteousness. It is an instrument. It is an instrument through which the righteousness of Christ is given to us. And so then we see that Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, uh, by faith from first to last. That's an interesting way that the NIV renders that. Just really quickly as we close, I'd like to, to mention that what Paul actually means there, what he probably means, if we were to literally render that, it just says uh, from faith to faith. The righteousness of God is from faith to faith. And Paul's point there, probably, is that uh, he is reinforcing that the righteousness of God bears savingly upon every person through faith. Right? The righteousness of God is from faith, it is out of faith, but then it is to faith. And that is, he's reinforcing the idea that the righteousness of God is given to each and every person that, that believes. In other words, Paul says, uh, we are justified by true faith, and each and every single person that has that true faith is justified. Right? It's not just Jews, it's not just Dutchmen. It's not just uh, Dutchman and Norwegian. It's not Norwegian and not Dutchman. It is every single person who has this faith. That is the only way to be justified, by true faith. And every single person who has true uh, faith is justified. 
Lastly, I should say just as an encouragement, this does not mean that our faith needs to be some kind of superhuman thing. It is the gift of God. And at times, our faith can waver. An imperfect faith can still grasp onto a perfect Savior. A weak faith can still grasp onto a strong Savior. The question is, is that confidence, is that assurance, is that trust there? We look inside our hearts, and we indeed believe what the Word of God says. We assent to its truthfulness, and we say, I need this righteousness to speak for me. So I trust in the work of Christ for me. And as we do, and as we are assured of our salvation in and through Christ, we know that he keeps us until our last day on this earth. So may God, by his grace, keep us and give us that faith and keep us in that faith each and every day as we look forward to the day when he will call us home and make us one with those who have gone before us and as we await uh, the resurrection of the body and the eternal life that he gives to us by grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for uh, your truth and your gospel. We thank you for the book of Romans and the the clarity uh, with which it presents to us all of these things. We ask that you give us uh, believing hearts and uh, that we would have all of these things that we talk about, the, the, the trust in the work of Christ for us. And Father, that this would not be anything that's a stumbling block to anyone, but that simply they would look to the Savior and that they would trust uh, that his work covers their sin. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.